Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, thank you so much for all that you've said to our hearts so far in the study of John, and we pray that you would continue to speak in Jesus' name. Amen. In our last lesson, we learned of Jesus' first miracle when he turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. But John 2 verse 11, remember, clearly stated that what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. The word for sign in Greek is semeon, and it means an act that teaches us about something important in the the spiritual realm. In other words, this first miraculous thing that Jesus did pointed to something spiritual that was even greater than itself. So let's look at what Jesus did and what it might have meant in a spiritual sense. Verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. So notice these six large water pots were the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Actually, the Jewish religious leaders had made many, many laws about washing, and these large water pots were associated with the legalistic cleansing practices that they carried out. But did you notice that they were empty? They must have been in order for them to have been filled by the servants. So there's a spiritual significance in that these water pots were empty because they were empty just as the religious rituals they represented were empty. God had his laws, but over the years, the Jewish religious leaders had mani managed to add many laws to what God had said. And I think the fact that there were six water pots here is significant because in scripture, when the number six is used, it's used to represent man because man was created on the sixth day. So here we see these pots are really being used as a symbol to represent the religious rules that had been made up by men. Their ideas of how to be cleansed dealt only with externals. All their washing did nothing to change the heart. But in Jesus' hand, the empty rituals of the Old Testament would be replaced with something better than anyone could have ever known before. Look at what happens in verse 8. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who'd drawn the water knew. 
Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. So although Jesus showed great kindness to that bride and groom, this miracle had even greater spiritual significance because it was a picture of what Jesus was coming to do and that he would replace the legalism that men had clung to for so long. The story also has a personal application for us as well, though, because God wants us to understand that just like those water pots, we are empty before him. But the good news is that empty things can be filled, and the same is true for us, but it's a process. Jesus told those servants to fill the jars up with water, and surely that was hard work that involved many trips back and forth. And they likely wondered why he commanded them to do that, but they obeyed him all the same. Let me tell you, perseverance is key even when we don't understand why Christ has asked us to do something. In the scriptures, both the word of God and the Holy Spirit are often referred to as water. And as we're filled up with God's word and his spirit, he will begin to transform what is within us, giving us something to be shared with others that will bring joy. In John Chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus went on to Jerusalem. Now, every Jewish male over the age of 12 was required by God to attend the Passover celebrations each year in the city. Verse 13, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So Christ always obeyed God's laws, but he often ignored the rules and practices that the Pharisees had added. When people went to temple for Passover, it was with the purpose of offering an animal sacrifice to God as they had done in the original Passover. The animals offered had to be perfect in every way and they'd be very carefully inspected by the priests. They would even check inside of the animal's eyelids to make sure that there was no imperfection. If there was, the offering would be unacceptable because the substitute had to be perfect. Now, you can imagine the problem that that may have caused for those who lived far away. Because if you brought your animal all the way from, say, Galilee, even when, if it was perfect at the start of the trip, there was no guarantee that it would still be perfect at the end of it. I mean, what if it stumbled or scraped its knee? An injured or scarred animal was unacceptable as a sacrifice. So to help the people... 
the religious leaders began to sell pre-approved animals at the temple, ones that were certain to pass priestly inspection. Not only that, but they also knew that those coming from foreign parts would need to exchange their money for local currency. And in order um, for people to pay their temple taxes, they began this very profitable money-changing business in the temple courts as well. What started out perhaps as a good idea turned into an opportunity to make as much money as possible. It became like a business with the leaders exploiting people for riches and power. They should have been focused in bringing people to God, but rather their focus was on what they could take from the people. Now, notice how Jesus does not destroy anything. He just turns things over and drives the sellers out, telling them to get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And as Jesus' disciples watched, they remembered a prophecy about the Messiah in Psalm 69 that said of him, zeal for God's house would consume him. Of course, the Jewish religious leaders were horrified at what he did. Who was he to interfere? And so they wanted to know by what authority he did what he did. Verse 18, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So the religious leaders whom John often refers to as the Jews, they wanted to know the source of Christ's authority and they asked him for a sign to prove that he spoke on God's behalf. But even if Jesus had performed a miracle, they would not have accepted it. So he told them in a roundabout way that the real sign of his authority would be his resurrection. But these religious leaders were darkened in their understanding and they only thought of the physical. So they mocked him saying that it had taken Herod 46 years to renovate the temple in Jerusalem. If it was destroyed now, how would he be able to restore it in three days? And then chapter two concludes, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So though Jesus would not perform signs on demand for the religious leaders, he did continue to do more signs in Jerusalem. And many people believed in him as a result. Although they believed in him, and entrusted themselves to him, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Why? Well, Jesus knew what was in their hearts, and we will see that truth revealed again and again throughout the Gospels. He knows 
people's secret thoughts. And that knowledge actually, in fact, proves that Christ is God himself, because throughout the Bible, we are told that it is only God who knows the heart. The people had believed because they saw the signs, but truly those who only ever seek a sign from God so that they can believe in him, they always end up needing another greater sign. And Jesus knew that. You see, true belief requires faith based on what is unseen. But as people turn to Christ in large numbers, you can imagine the effect that that had on the Jewish leadership. It seemed very evident that many of them had begun to ask questions about who he was. And so at the beginning of chapter 3, we see a very prominent Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus being sent to ask Jesus some questions. Let's look at verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Nicodemus belonged to a group known as the Pharisees, and the name Pharisee meant something like the separated ones, and they were very legalistic. They saw themselves as being different to everyone else. But before you judge them too harshly, you have to know that the Pharisees were really the religious heroes of the day, because in times of severe persecution, they'd been the ones who had made sure that the Lord of God was taught. They desperately tried to be good enough for God, and that's why they had so many of their own rules. Because in an attempt at faultless obedience, they had added more than 600 of their own laws to what God had actually commanded. Their rules were known as fence laws because they believed if you kept their instructions, then there was no way you could accidentally break in and go against the commands that God had actually given. For example, God had commanded Jewish people not to eat anything unclean, but they apparently wondered what would happen if an unclean fly landed in your drink, for example, and you swallowed it by accident. Well, to eliminate the possibility, well, to eliminate the possibility of that happening, they made a new law of their own, a fence law which required that the faithful people should strain their drinks just in case. The problem was that over the years, the fence laws became equal in importance to God's actual law. In fact, in some cases, they became even more important. And so a person's faithfulness was measured by whether or not they strained everything they drank rather than by the actual law of God, which was not to consume anything unclean. Their hope, the Pharisees' hope, rested in their own self-effort, their own works and their actions, and it proved that they really had no faith in God's mercy. 
Nicodemus was a man who was very serious about following the law of God. And that is important because not only was he a ruler of the Jews, meaning that he was a member of the Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. He was also one of the top religious teachers. He was a powerful leader in Israel. In verse 2, we're told that he visited Jesus at night, and that may have been to keep his visit a secret, but it also may have been so that they would not be interrupted by others. Nicodemus does call Jesus rabbi or teacher, so obviously he is there to learn from him, but don't miss what he says, because Nicodemus is actually speaking on behalf of others in the council who were not as sure as some that Jesus should be rejected. Look at verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now I want you to think about it. Being on the ruling council, Nicodemus was one of the most powerful men in Jerusalem. His whole life had been focused on following God faultlessly. And Jesus tells him that unless he's born again or born from above, he would never see the kingdom of God. This was not easy for him to understand. After all, Nicodemus was used to doing good works to please God. But I want to ask you, what can you really do in order to be born? What can you really do in order to be born again? So he asks... How can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus, you see, is focused on the impossibility of what he thinks is a second physical birth. And he still seems to be focused on what do I need to do in my own strength to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Whenever Jesus used the words very truly at the start of a sentence, it is always to stress the unquestionable truth of what he's about to say. And he says that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. The question there is, what does Jesus mean by being born of water? I think he may be picking up on Nicodemus's previous reference to physical birth because we all know that before physical birth occurs, a woman's water breaks. So he may be using that as a symbol, but he says in addition to be being born physically, we must be born spiritually as well. We must be born from above. And that seems to be confirmed by what he says in verse 6, because he says that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. But 
remember Nicodemus was a very religious Jew. He would also have been focused on cleansing rituals where they would frequently immerse themselves in water to have a fresh start with God. When a Jew came out of their religious washing, they would feel, in a sense, reborn. But Jesus is telling him here that the past religious practices are insufficient. And he goes on to say that a person must be born again. Do you see that in verse 7? A person must be born from above. It's not a suggestion. It's not optional. But it's also something that Nicodemus cannot achieve on his own. It's something that only God can accomplish by the power of his spirit. Jesus goes on to say, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Jesus is referring here to the Holy Spirit. And it's important to understand that the word for wind and spirit there in the Greek is exactly the same word. The word is pneuma. The Holy Spirit, like the wind, is at work whether Nicodemus fully understands it or not. It is as if Jesus is saying to the Pharisee, you don't know where the evening breeze comes from or where it's going, but you can feel it. And so it is with the Spirit of God. The prophet Ezekiel had foreseen in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 37, that the Holy Spirit is really the one who can bring life. According to Ezekiel 37 verse 14, God had promised his people that there would be a time to come in the future when he said, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. Actually, rebirth by the Holy Spirit had been promised at many times throughout the Old Testament. But the Holy Spirit in those days was only given to certain individuals, such as the kings and the prophets. God's people were desperately in need of his spirit but it's only since the death of Christ on the cross remember when he gave up his spirit that the Holy Spirit is now able to be poured out on all who believe if you're struggling to make sense of all this don't worry Nicodemus was struggling to make sense of it too if Jesus had said the Romans needed to be born again, well, that would have been one thing. But to say that Nicodemus, a Jew, a Pharisee, a teacher of teachers and a member of the ruling council needed to be renewed by the Holy Spirit, well, that just didn't make sense. Verse 9, how can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. 
So here again, do you see Jesus refers to himself by that messianic title, the son of man. And then he goes on to say the same thing he's already been saying to Nicodemus, but he says it in a way that this teacher of teachers will understand. Of course, Nicodemus has an advantage over us because as a teacher of Israel, he was very familiar with the Old Testament, particularly the writings of Moses. So he would have understood the point of Christ's reference to the snake in the desert. If not immediately, then certainly he did later on. We, however, need to go and look at that event because although it occurred in the days of Moses, it really foreshadowed what Christ would later come to do on the cross. The account of this incident is found in Numbers 21 verses 4 through 9. God's people had left Egypt and they were on their way to the promised land, but sin had crept in and they began to complain about Moses and about God. Israel despised God's way. They hated his provision of manna. They longed to go back to Egypt and the slavery that they'd been delivered from. Interestingly, the symbol of the Egyptian pharaoh was a snake. And so we see that they longed to go back to the snake of Egypt rather than to follow the living God. And so to remind them of what life had been like under that serpent of old, the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. Apparently this had the desired effect because the people realizing their sin and their inability to help themselves turned to Moses. They repented of their sin and they also asked him to pray for the Lord to take the snakes away. As it turned out, God did not rid them of the snakes, but instead he gave them a way to be saved through faith. He told Moses to make a snake out of bronze and to put it up on a pole. When anyone who was bitten by a snake looked at the bronze snake, they would live. This is an illustration of what God would do through Jesus on the cross to cure us of the poison of our sin. Think about the story of Moses in the wilderness. The snake's poison brought death. No remedy could be found in the camp of men. The solution came from God alone. I'm sure all of Israel did not fully understand it at the time, but the serpent on the pole was made out of brass. And so although it was made in that image, because it was metal, it had no poison of its own. More than that, it was enduring because from that time on, when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. No other version of the snake was ever made. There was one and there was only one. To be healed was simple enough, but it was personal. No one else could look at the bronze serpent for you. This was something each individual had to do themselves. There was no such thing as self-help. It was by faith alone that life was given. 
That was what Jesus wanted Nicodemus to understand, that just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The story of the bronze serpent had been a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And now those cornered by the great serpent, Satan, who were afflicted by the poison of sin, might look to Jesus, lifted up on the cross and live. They could look to him and have new life. They could be born again. God loves all of us so much that he sent his one and only son to be the cure. Jesus did not come to condemn us, but to give us the opportunity for new life, life lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. This was not achieved by faultless legalism. We're not saved by our own endeavors. We are saved by faith alone as we look to the one who was lifted up on the cross. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much that as we study your word, we see the obscure things from the Old Testament suddenly begin to take shape and make sense according to what Christ has come to do. Thank you so much for your word that leads us into all truth. We praise you for what you've said to our hearts today. And I pray that anyone who has not trusted Christ yet would do so now to the glory of Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.